Well, we are getting near the end of our study of knowing God, just a couple of chapters left. And this, the last couple of chapters are in the third part of the book, which he's entitled, If God Be For Us, which uh, takes a closer look at the doctrines of God in relationship to the gospel and what God does for us by his grace in Christ. And so tonight's chapter, chapter 18, is called The Heart of the Gospel. And I'm going to let you know right off the bat that we're not going to get all the way through a summary of chapter 18 tonight. That was a long chapter. There was a lot in it. And so I've intentionally broken it in, in half. And so I want to look at the first half tonight and then look at the second half next week. But uh, over the last few weeks, some of the characteristics of God that we've been looking at have to do with, um, I don't know how else to say it other than some of what might be described as some of the harsher attributes of God, judgment, wrath, uh, severity, uh, his holy anger, things like this. And, and so that leads into uh, a discussion about the gospel. And he starts out by talking about the idea of propitiation in the pagan world. It's kind of showing us what uh, the, the ancient world uh, thought about in terms of the worship of their gods and how to serve their gods. And he says that in the ancient world, in polytheistic pagan cultures, they had this concept of propitiation, but much different, unlike what the Bible describes as propitiation. And so in the pagan worldview, you had many gods. But with many gods, not one of them was had dominion over everything. It's like with the, the many different gods, they each had their little spheres of influence. And none of them had absolute dominion. And so these different gods, they were believed in these pagan religions to have power over various realms. So whether it be rain, you know, sunshine, having children, food production, whatever it was, health, they had these different realms that the gods were over. And if you upset the gods, well, they could make your life difficult. That was the view of the pagan world. And so these gods, and you read some of the stories, uh, the myths and fables about these uh, like Canaanite and Babylonian Egyptian gods. And in their stories about these gods, really they come across as very human-like, just more powerful. And in their human-likeness, they're, they're easily ticked off. They're, uh, they have a short fuse, short temper. They're capricious. They're fickle, easily offended. Well, that's a problem in that world because if you offend a god then he's going to rain down terror on you. And you've got to do something to try to appease that God. And so the gods would manipulate circumstances in their realm of influence to work against you, make life difficult for you if you offended them. At least that's what they thought. And so the way that they would seek to uh, bring a solution to this is to try to please their gods by appeasing them somehow with maybe a lavish gift or a very costly sacrifice. And in that worldview, in the pagan polytheistic worldview, the bigger the sacrifice, the better, even to the point of human sacrifice. And so we read about in the Bible, some of the Canaanite religions uh, offering human sacrifices, detestable 
to God, despicable. But that's the idea of propitiation in the pagan worldview. And so he says toward the beginning of the chapter, he says, thus pagan religion appears as a callous commercialism, a matter of managing and manipulating your gods by cunning bribery. And within paganism, propitiation, the appeasing of celestial bad tempers, takes its place as a regular part of life, one of the many irksome necessities that one cannot get on without. So the gods got angry. You figured out a way to appease them, at least the best you knew how. That was the pagan worldview. But biblical theism, that is the biblical view of God, is much different, isn't it? And so in biblical theism, we don't have many gods. We have one God. And this one God is the creator of everything. And this one God is the one who has dominion over everything. Also, this God of the Bible, our creator God, is not uh, fickle and hot-tempered and easily provoked. This God of the Bible, the God that we worship, is the source of all goodness and truth, love, and detesting that which is evil. And so the God of the Bible is not uh, pictured as one who has a bad temper, who is capricious, not vain, not easily provoked. In fact, the Bible says he is slow to anger. He's long-suffering. So then... Should the Bible then even bring in the idea of propitiation? Some scholars, biblical scholars, Christian scholars would say no. There's no place in Christian theology for this idea of God being angry and that wrath being appeased, propitiated. They say that sounds too much like pagan religion. And so therefore, that's not how we should think of God. Um, in fact, I, would, I read one, uh, one of the Greek lexicons that I have, the Greek definition for the Greek word behind propitiation. He defines it as uh, an atoning sacrifice or expiation. And he says specifically, this does not mean propitiation, the way that a lot of the translations translate it. And then he gives this explanation. He says, because... God is not angry. He's already for people. And I read that and I thought, has he ever even read the Bible? Because we have, and he talks about this in the chapter, that the wrath of God is very real. The wrath of God against sin, the wrath of God that brings judgment, condemnation on humanity is all throughout the Bible. Even in the New Testament, you have John three thirty six. Those who do not believe in God's only son, God's wrath remains on them, abides on them. In Romans 1, the wrath of God is being revealed against all ungodliness. But there's this idea out there, especially among more liberal theologians, that the idea of propitiation has no place in Christian theology. And so he talks about that. So what does propitiation look like in the Bible then? First of all, he says, we see it in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the idea of propitiation underlies the rituals of the sin offering, the guilt offering, and the day of atonement 
that are described in Leviticus. So in those offerings, you have a God, holy God, a righteous God, who is offended, who has been sinned against. And God being sinned against in his righteousness, in his justice, must punish that sin. He is rightfully, justly angry with that sin. In the theology of Leviticus, the means of appeasing God, atoning the wrath of God is through offering, through sacrifice, a sin offering, a guilt offering, or once a year in the day of atonement. We see the idea of God's anger being appeased, propitiated. Uh, in one instance in the book of Numbers, where God is angry and he's threatening to destroy the people because of their rebellion. But Aaron, by offering a, a sacrifice, offering incense, stands in the gap and appeases the anger of God by sacrifice. And so we read in Numbers chapter 16, then Moses said to Aaron, take your censer and put incense in it along with burning coals from the altar and hurry to the assembly to make atonement for them. Wrath has come out from the Lord. The plague has started. And reason why this is significant is because the idea there at number 1646 of make atonement in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that's our word for propitiation. Make atonement, for, propitiate for them. Why? Because the wrath of God has come out. God is angry with them because of their sin. So Aaron did as Moses said and ran into the midst of the assembly. The plague had already started among the people, but Aaron offered the incense and made atonement for them. He stood between the living and the dead and the plague stopped. God's wrath was appeased. So we see the idea of propitiation in the Old Testament. We also see it in the New Testament in several key passages of scripture. Uh, one of them, one of the most important ones is in Romans 3, 21 to 26. And in this passage, we see the rationale of God's justification of sinners. So the idea of propitiation is talked about in relationship with how God in his character, faithful to his character, is able to justify the ungodly, to justify sinners. And so we see in Romans 3.21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Who is this whom? That's talking about there. It's Christ, isn't it? God put forth Christ as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show or to declare his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In other words, Paul is saying, this is how God's character 
is fully satisfied. How God can be just, righteous, good, holy, and yet still offer mercy and grace and forgiveness to sinners. How could that be possible? How could the justice of God and the mercy of God merge and come together and be reconciled? And Paul says it's by means of Christ. Christ, through the sacrifice of his own blood, he was a propitiation, a, an offering that atoned for our sin and appeased, propitiated the wrath of God so that God would be favorably disposed toward us and welcome us and declare us righteous in his sight. And so in Romans 3, we see propitiation talked about as the rationale for God to to justify sinners. Then we see the idea also talked about in Hebrews, where it is talked about in relationship to the incarnation of the Son of God. Hebrews 2.17 says, Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, talking about his humanity. Jesus had to be made human like us in every way. In order that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. In other words, the writer of Hebrews is saying, in order for Christ to be our high priest and to properly make propitiation before God for our sins, Jesus Christ had to be one of us. He had to be fully man. And in order to serve as our faithful high priest, we see the idea of propitiation talked about in 1 John as well in the context of the intercessory or uh, advocating work of the Lord Jesus Christ. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, he says, My little children, these things I write to you, so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So Jesus is our advocate. He is the one standing for us, advocating for us. How is he able to do this? Because he is the propitiation for our sins. He himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the whole world in the idea of not just for Jewish people, but for all peoples. Jesus Christ is our propitiation. So we can go before God. We can have our sins forgiven because Jesus is advocating on our behalf. And what gives him the right to advocate on our behalf for God to forgive our sins is because Jesus' sacrifice has already propitiated the wrath of God and covered our sins. And then in 1 John 4, 8 through 10, we see the, this concept of propitiation in describing and expressing what the love of God is. This is, this is what John says in 1 John 4, 8. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. 
What does the love of God mean? The greatest description of the love of God in the Bible is the gift of Christ to be our sacrifice. That's the greatest description of love in the Bible. John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Gave him not only in sending him as the incarnate God man, but gave him also to the death of the cross that he would die in our place, that those who believe in him might not perish, but have everlasting life. Romans 5, 8, God commendeth or shows his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Here he says, God is love. How can we know what love is? This is love. God loved us first. We didn't love him. He loved us. And he demonstrated that love by offering Christ as a propitiation for our sins atoning for us and making us welcome in the presence of God. And so he asks then this question, has the word propitiation any place in your Christianity? In the faith of the New Testament, it is central. The love of God, the taking of human form by the Son, the meaning of the cross, Christ's heavenly intercession, the way of salvation, all are to be explained in terms of it, in terms of propitiation. And he says, and a gospel without propitiation at its heart is another gospel than that which Paul preached. The implications of this must not be evaded. And he brings in Galatians 1.6, where Paul says, if anybody comes and preaches another gospel than the one that I've preached to you, let him be accursed. So contrary to more modern liberal theologians, we cannot remove the idea of propitiation from the Bible. It's there. It's a part of who God is. It's a part of his character. And, and more fundamentally, even than that, it's, it's the, the very outworking of his character in the gospel. This is how we are made right with God. So it's not some sideline or, you know, tangential doctrine that we can not talk about. It's central to our faith, to what the gospel is. And then he discusses kind of a a controversy about the best way to translate and to understand the words in the New Testament. And he says it's not merely expiation. And the reason why this discussion is because there's a difference in the way that Bible versions translate this word. The Greek word is helosmos. And there's a a family, probably three or four words that are related to that word, helosmos. And there's a, a debate about the best way to translate this word. And so you have some translations translate it with the idea of expiation. So like the Revised Standard Version, the New American Bible, they'll translate it expiation. What is expiation? It is specifically related to the covering of sin. So with expiation, sin is the object. Sin is being covered, washed away. You have the New English Bible, which says that the word should be translated remedy for defilement, which kind of brings to it kind of a more ceremonial cleansing. 
idea. Remedy for defilement. Uh, several of the newer um, conservative translations like the NIV, the Christian Standard Bible, um, the New Revised Standard Version, some of these translate it as atoning sacrifice. Well, one could argue that you have in that the idea of both the covering of sin, atonement, as well as the appeasing of God in sacrifice. But the idea of propitiation is not as clearly described in that translation. You have the New Living Translation, sacrifice that atones. And this is um, probably the, the worst I saw. The contemporary English version kind of just punts on it and says this word means it's God's way of dealing with something. God's way of dealing with our sins. It kind of pretty generic. What does this word mean? What is the difference, he says? Whether we translate it expiation or atoning sacrifice or covering of our sin or propitiation, what does it mean? What's the difference? He says, here's the difference. The, The difference is that expiation means only half of what propitiation means. Expiation is an action that has sin as its object. It denotes the covering, the putting away, or the rubbing out of sin so that it no longer constitutes a barrier to friendly fellowship between man and God. So expiation looks at kind of like God here, man here. The barrier, the wall is sin. And as long as we can remove that wall, then there's nothing to prevent these two parties from being reconciled. And so expiation is the wiping out, the tearing down of that wall of sin, if you will. Well, that's certainly part of it. But what G.I. Packer is saying is that's only part of it. It's only half of the full equation. Because propitiation, however, in the Bible denotes all that expiation means and the pacifying of the wrath of God. So in other words, what he's saying is, yes, our our sins need to be atoned for. Our sins need to be covered. But that misses the more fundamental point is that that sin, that offense has offended a holy God. And the removal, the covering of that sin also has the effect then of satisfying the holiness of God and appeasing the wrath of God towards sin. So that both ideas should be present in the meaning of this word. I read it a little, a little bit more, some outside reading beyond J.I. Packer, and I came across this quote from Herman Bavink. He says, as our mediator... Jesus, he has obtained the full benefits of our whole salvation, beginning with an objective atonement for our sin. And then he says this, refusals to acknowledge propitiation as the heart of his death and resurrection result from a misunderstanding of God's love. He says, it is God's love that is the basis for his providing Christ as the means of propitiation. By Christ's sacrifice, a new relation of reconciliation and peace 
has been accomplished between God and humanity. The wall of separation is not just sin. There is, uh, there is wrath toward sinners from a holy God. That too must be dealt with. And Jesus dealt with that in his crossword. I was reading one of the commentaries on 1 John, 1 John 2, dealing with this word propitiation. This is from I. Howard Marshall. And he says that in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, he says the, the meaning of the word is that Jesus expiates our sin, but that's not all. He says also included in the, in the meaning of 1 John 2 is that Jesus propitiates God with respect to our sins. He says there can be no real doubt that this is the meaning. In the previous verse, the thought was of Jesus acting as our advocate before God. The picture which continues into this verse, speaking of 1 John 2, 2, is of Jesus pleading the cause of guilty sinners before a judge who is being petitioned to pardon their acknowledged guilt. He is not being asked to declare them innocent. That is to say that there is no evidence that they have sinned, but rather to grant them pardon for their acknowledged sins. In order that forgiveness may be granted, there is an action in respect of the sins, which has the effect of rendering God favorable to the sinner. We may, if we wish, say that the sins are canceled out by the action in question. This means that the one action has the double effect of expiating the sin and thereby propitiating God. This means that the two aspects of the action belong together. So 1 John 2, 2, he is the propitiation for our sins, means that Jesus not only expiated, covered, atoned, washed away the sins, but in so doing, propitiated the wrath of God. He says both of those ideas have to be present there in the meaning of that word. Another commentary on 1 John, Robert Yarborough says this, while Jesus' death certainly has the effect of expiating sin that is wiping away its penalty, it is difficult to avoid the impression that it also propitiates, turns away the wrath of God's promised punishment of sin and sinners whose transgressions are not atoned for on the last day, a day of condemnation spoken of by Jesus in John 12, 48. So in other words, both ideas are present, expiating covering sin, but also assuaging or appeasing, propitiating the wrath of a holy God. So J.I. Packer goes on to say, the wrath of God against us, both present and to come, has been quenched. That's an amazing thought. The wrath of God against us, both present and to come, has been quenched. How is this affected? Through the death of Christ. When we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. The blood, that is the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ, abolished God's anger against us and ensured that his treatment of us forever after would be propitious and favorable. By his sacrificial death for our sins, Christ pacified the wrath of God so that Paul can then say in Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation 
for those who are in Christ Jesus. No more wrath, no more judgment, no more condemnation because God's character has been appeased, has been satisfied. His holiness, his justice, his righteousness, his wrath, it's all been satisfied in Christ. No more need for condemnation. Then he talks about God's anger and how we should understand it in Scripture. And he wants us to be sure that we don't understand the anger of God in a pagan way. So remember toward the beginning, we were talking about pagan uh, polytheism and their different gods and how easily they could be upset. He says, God is not this way. God is not capricious. He's not arbitrary. He's not bad tempered. He's not conceited. It's not the conceited anger that we see in the pagan gods. But also we shouldn't think of the anger of God like human anger either. God's anger is not sinful, resentful, malicious, or infantile anger that we often find in humans. Rather, God's anger is a function of his holiness and his righteousness. God's anger is a holy anger. God's anger is a righteous anger. John Murray says this, God's wrath is the holy revulsion of God's being against that which is the contradiction of his holiness. It issues in a positive outgoing of the divine displeasure. In other words, God becomes angry when his holiness, his righteousness is offended. And so from God then comes divine displeasure. And so J.I. Packer says, the, the, the liberal theologians who want to say, no, God's not angry. We, we can't talk about propitiation. We shouldn't think of the wrath of God this way. J.I. Packer is actually saying, if we're to throw out the wrath of God, the anger of God against sin, what we're really throwing out is the justice of God. And that's not a good God at all. Do you want a judge who welcomes murderers into his courtroom and says, eh, you're fine, go on home? That's not justice. We don't want a God who is not just or angry with sin. And so he says, God is not just. That is, he does not act in the way that is right. He does not do what is proper to a judge unless he inflicts upon all sin and wrongdoing the penalty it deserves. In order for God to be just, he must punish sin. So how does Paul then describe propitiation in Romans 3? Propitiation is the work of God himself. This is a huge reason why propitiation, the idea of propitiating the, the wrath, the anger of the gods in the pagan religion is so far removed, so different from the way propitiation is described in the Bible. Because in pagan religion, who is the one propitiating the gods? We are. It's the people. The gods are upset. The gods are offended. I've done something to tick them off. I've got to do something to appease them, to make them happy with me again. So I'll bring this lavish gift or I'll bring this incredibly costly sacrifice. And maybe that will, you know, calm them down and make them happy toward me again. It's the person 
trying to appease a a hot-tempered, wrathful God. That's not the way the Bible describes it at all. Who propitiates the wrath of God in the Bible? God does. God does. God is both the one offering the propitiation and the one receiving the propitiation. He propitiates himself. He is, it is the work of God himself. And so in paganism, man propitiates his gods and it becomes a form of commercialism, of bribery. Well, how how much can I pay to pay off the gods, if you will, to make them favorably disposed towards me? But in Christianity, God propitiates his wrath by his own action. God takes the initiative. The doctrine of the propitiation is precisely this, that God loved the objects of his wrath so much that he gave his own son to the end that he by his blood should make provision for the removal of his wrath. God loved the objects of his wrath and sent Christ to satisfy the demands of his holy wrath. So God initiates propitiation. Secondly, Paul in Romans 3 reminds us that propitiation was made by the death of Jesus Christ. Through Christ's atoning sacrifice, through his death on the cross, by his blood. So when Paul tells us that God set forth Jesus to be a propitiation by his blood, his point is that what quenched God's wrath and so redeemed us from death was not Jesus' life or teaching, not his moral perfection, nor his fidelity to the Father as such, but the shedding of his blood in death. Not that those other things aren't important. His perfect life, his teachings, those things are still important, part of who he is. But fundamentally, what satisfies the wrath of God towards sin is the shedding of the blood of Christ. And this is pictured all throughout Scripture in the animal sacrifices, isn't it? Jesus was fulfilling all of those pictures of the animal sacrifices when he gave himself to the death of the cross. Paul always points to the death of Jesus as the atoning event and explains the atonement in terms of representative substitution. The innocent taking the place of the guilty in the name and for the sake of the guilty under the acts of God's judicial retribution. Representative sacrifice is what the Bible teaches of the atonement of Christ. And that's all the way back. That that is pictured. Representative sacrifice is pictured going all the way back to the very opening pages of the Old Testament. And so you see places like in the Passover, where while they were in, in Egypt, they were to take a lamb and they were to sacrifice it and they were to take its blood and they were to apply it to the doorposts of their homes. That animal stood in the place, represented the people who lived in that home. And each home had to do it. Highlighting the fact that that lamb substituted for them. If they couldn't afford it, two homes could come together. But that lamb always represented people within a home or a couple of homes. That, that blood represented them. Representative substitution. The Day of Atonement. You had a, 
a sacrifice that was made, that was uh, placed on the altar, offered in sacrifice. But you also had another uh, animal, a scapegoat, if you will. And the high priest would ceremoniously place his hands on that scapegoat as if communicating the idea of representation. This goat now represents me, represents the sins of the people. And it was sent out into the wilderness where it was never seen again. And the idea of both of those animals is that sacrifice has been made and our sins have been removed. And both of those pictures are fulfilled in Christ. But it's always representation of the sacrifice representing the, the, the person who offers it. And so we see that in the scriptures, Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He represented us. So God initiated propitiation. The means of propitiation is always the sacrifice of Christ. And thirdly, he says, Paul makes very clear in Romans 3 that propitiation shows, manifests the righteousness of God. The truth of propitiation does not call into question the morality of God's dealing with sin, it establishes it. This shows the righteousness of God. So in Romans 3, Paul says that God did this to declare or to show his righteousness. Paul's point is that the public spectacle of propitiation at the cross was a public manifestation, not merely of justifying mercy on God's part, but of righteousness and justice as the basis of justifying mercy. God did this to show his righteousness. And so far from being unconcerned about moral issues and the just requirement of retribution for wrongdoing is so concerned about these things that he does not. Indeed, Paul would, we think boldly say, cannot pardon sinners and justify the ungodly except on the basis of justice shown forth in retribution. In other words, what he's saying is God put forth Christ as a propitiation. Why? To show, to demonstrate that God was indeed being righteous and just and in perfect conformity to his holy, righteous character in judging sin. Because it was being judged in Christ. So he says, our sins have been punished. Here's the thing that we have to understand about the gospel. God must punish sin. God's holiness, his righteousness, his wrath demands in order to be true to himself that he punish sin. For those who are in Christ, our sins were punished, but in him, not by us. Those who are not in Christ, 
their sons, their sins will be punished by themselves. They will receive that punishment. Our sins have been punished. The wheel of retribution has turned. Judgment has been inflicted for our ungodliness, but on Jesus, the Lamb of God, standing in our place. In this way, God is just and the justifier of those who put faith in Jesus. That's how God's character is fully satisfied. All of the attributes of his character, his righteousness, his justice is upheld because he has judged sin. His mercy and grace is on full display because he justifies sinners in Christ. Christ is the answer of how God can be just and the justifier. He's just because sin is punished. He can justify because Christ has taken our place. All of that satisfies the wrath of God, satisfies all of his character. And that's where we're going to stop. That's why I said we're only going to get halfway. It's already 647, and that's just half the chapter. It's a lot in there, isn't it? What did you all think? If you all had a chance to read chapter 18 or, or get partway through it or even from our summary of it tonight, any thoughts or comments or questions that you had? Pagan uh, propitiation. Yeah. Uh, I get, it kept rolling in my mind uh, almost twofold. The goodness of God leads you to repentance. That certainly is absent in pagan mm. propitiation. Yeah, there's no grace at all there. No, no goodness. Yeah. Yeah, in, in that pagan theological worldview, it, it had to be constant living under fear of and walking on eggshells, uh, making the gods upset. And you yeah. have to say the goodness of God in propitiation. Yeah. Propitiation and, and all of that. It, that was, it, it looks horrible that he uh, sacrificed his own son and all that. But the consequence was out of this world. Yeah. One of the things that he said uh, along the way that I didn't bring out tonight, but I thought was an important point is that he, he was clear that the, the idea of propitiation was harmoniously worked out among the, the triune God. So in other words, you'll have some you know, liberal theologians who will say God's a divine child abuser. You know, he threw his, threw his son to the death of the cross. No, Christ willingly went, didn't he? Christ willingly went. It was a harmonious plan to atone for our sins. Then you also have others will say, uh, Christ was the good-hearted one who, you know, uh, um, made happy an angry God, angry father. You know, the angry God of the Old Testament. Jesus satisfied the loving Jesus of the New Testament. And he makes a point to say no. God initiated the propitiation of his own wrath. So the father is loving in giving the son. The son is loving in giving of himself. The spirit is loving in communicating all of this to us. So harmonious uh, in the outworking of this uh, among the Trinity. Well, I hope you all uh, uh, were benefited by this chapter and our discussion of it. We'll finish it out, hopefully, Lord willing, next week.